Today's episode of the Hot Ford Podcast has been brought to you by Simpsons Malt, the UK's independent home of good malt. Founded in 1862, Simpsons Malt is a fifth generation family owned business which is a passion for making malts with taste, flavour and consistently high quality with the world's best brewers and distillers in mind, helping them to craft the finest beers and whiskies. From grain to glass, the company's malts are certified and fully traceable, produced only from certified seed of the finest UK two-row barley that have been procured by the company's agricultural trading division, McCree Simpson and Prentice, which has farming partners across England and Scotland. After more than 155 years in business, Simpson's Malt continues to invest in state-of-the-art equipment and its two maltings in Berwick-upon-Tweed, Northumberland and Tivitshaw St Margaret, Norfolk. This constant innovation and drive to improve processes ensures the consistent production of malts with character. For more information on Simpson's Malt, visit simpsonsmalt.co.uk. To inquire about the company's malts, call 01289-333300 or email orderoffice at simpsonsmalt.co.uk. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello, Cast Crusaders, Guardians of the Goldings, and Secret Sparklers. And welcome to another session on the Hot Ford podcast. Cast your mind back to the first ever pint of Landlord from West Yorkshire Brewery, Timothy Taylor's, that you ever had. What was it like? I remember having this beer in bottle over the course of many years, but it wasn't until fairly recently, upon a visit to the Pembury Tavern, slap bang in the middle of Hackney, that I encountered my first ever pint of the amber stuff through a handpool and served with a sparkler. The irony is that they serve a cracking pint of Landlord down the road at the Gardens Rest in Sheffield and my friend Nigel used to serve it up week after week at my then favourite pub, the Ramble Inn. And yeah, I never tried it. Riding the wave of hoppy crisp pale ales using American hops grown in the Yakima Valley region and European brewed pastry stouts infused with more donuts than a Krispy Kreme outlet. I'd all but forsaken best bitters and English pale ales until I started being hit by severe beer fatigue. It's easy to jump on the hazy hype train and follow the trends of all the latest dipper producing breweries that you might encounter on Instagram, but beers like Timothy Taylor's Landlord truly stand the test of time. First introduced in 1952, the beer has gone on to be champion beer of Britain and brewing industry international award winners over 25 times, and that's just between the 1980s up to today. What makes Landlord and Timothy Taylor's other beers so prestigious is their attention to detail and quality assurance, not just in the brew house, but running throughout the entire business and brand. 
You may have heard me recounter some of this in last week's live recording from the SEBA North and East Regional Meeting at Rooster's Tap Room where I talk about branding. But from the moment I arrived and was welcomed into reception by a sign stating Timothy Taylor's welcome as Nick Law, uh, to the moment I left with a goodie bag of beer and other merch, the hospitality, the pursuit of excellence and the family spirit was evident in every part of their brewery. Chief Executive Tim Dewey showed me around their brew house, everything from the colossal single infusion mash tun and hot back through to the huge open top square fermenters with happy yeast chomping away and the semi-automated cask racking line complete with lightsaber for inspecting every single cask. The whole thing oozed in doing things properly. If the wants a job doing right, do it this end. As my dad used to say. As far as they're concerned, they're just doing their thing, making sure that the customers they supply are happy, both young and old alike, are supplied with beer that meets their high expectations with every single pour. But as far as I was concerned, I left captivated by what a brewery can and should aspire to be through our every element of their brewing business. So I had the privilege of sitting down with Chief Executive Tim Dewey and Head Brewer Andy LeMann to chat about the history of the brewery and landlord, what makes their brewery process and beers so unique, uh, where they see British pubs and Caspia heading over the coming years, and some of the challenges that a brewer such as Timothy Taylor's face in today's market. I think you'll find this episode interesting and inspiring as you look to develop your own beer business and and who knows, maybe one day your flagship beer will grace pubs throughout the land as drinkers go back for their third or fourth pint. So once again, a massive thanks to Tim and Andy from Timothy Taylors and to Scott Cameron, their brand manager, for setting up this interview. And also a huge thanks to our sponsor of today's show, Simpsons Malt. If you like Hot Forward, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at Hot Forward Beers. Hit the subscribe button and leave a review on iTunes so that more people like your good self will discover the show. And visit hotforward.beer to find out how Hot Forward can help you and your beer business through brand development, marketing services and business consultancy. We have packages to suit brewers, suppliers, merchants and beer businesses of all shapes and sizes and budgets. And now let us crack open today's sesh of the Hot Four podcast with Chief Exec Tim Dewey and head brewer Andy LeMann from Timothy Taylor's. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm on site at one of the UK's most well-loved breweries, an institution even in British beer. I'm, I'm here in Keithley, West Yorkshire, at Timothy Taylor. And I am joined by Chief Executive uh, Tim Dewey and Head Brewer Andy LeMann. Uh, hello and welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Hi Nick. Thanks <coughs> very much for, for coming up to the brewery. Yeah, Appreciate th- it. Thanks for having me around the brewery. It's been great having a look around and um, seeing where all the, all the magic happens. Um, firstly, could you tell us a little bit about each of you, um, how long you've been involved in the brewing and beverage industry, how you got involved in Timothy Taylor's and what your daily activities look like, both as a chief executive and as a head brewer? Yeah, so I suppose if I start out, um, yeah. I, um, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from Yorkshire, so I studied over here in the 70s and met my wife who's Welsh and that's mm. how I ended up this side of the Atlantic but most of my career has been in the spirits industry. So I uh, worked with uh, Diageo, William Grant and & Sons and other spirits companies. 
And um, my most recent, uh, I did have a period with SAB Miller where I was uh, brand director for Pilsner Kell. Yeah. Um, but I was actually uh, global marketing director and UK commercial director for Drembuey at a time when we decided that Drembuey couldn't stay in independent hands, was in a very different circumstance to Timothy Taylor's. And just as we decided to sell Drembuey, I got a contact from a recruitment consultant saying there's a chief executive role going at uh, Timothy Taylor's, would you be interested? Mm. So uh, I came up here five years ago, I started December 2014, and five years has gone very fast. Yeah. Great. And what about you, Andy? Yes, hello. Uh, well, I, I got into brewing um, uh, many years ago now, uh, when my father tried to stop me going down the pub and drinking with my mates when we were all underage, and persuaded me to brew beer at home instead. And uh, of course, we still went down the pub, and then everybody <laughs> ended up back at mine when the pub shut. <laughs> but um, I went to University at Harriet Watts in Edinburgh um, to study brewing. I was there for four years and um, I did some work every uh, summertime there when I was at, there at Breakspears Brewery in Henley which then was a very similar size to Timothy Taylor's and had similar principles, very similar principles. And I came here in 1987 as third brewer and bottling manager and been here since and eventually fortunate enough to be made head brewer in 2015. Yeah, amazing. So I think most of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Timothy Taylor's and, and particularly a beer like Landlord, um, you know, a beer that's won multiple awards since 1982, but maybe less so with the brewery itself. Like, can you share with us a bit of the history behind Timothy Taylor's? Um, well, it was founded in 1858 on a slightly different site than the one we're on today. It was founded at the Cook Lane in Keithley. Mm. Uh, but in 1863, this parcel of land that we're on today came up for sale, known as the Knoll Spring. And Timothy Taylor back then did maltings as well as brewing, and Key was a source of water. Uh, and he came up here for the well, the Knoll Spring well, which is what we're still using to this day for the for the brewing. And so we've been on this site ever since 1863. As you've seen from the little tour around, you know we've developed out from the original buildings, but the core older original buildings are, are very much uh, still there and we're mm. you know uh, pleased to be kind of a key part of the of the town i love how you can when you when you look around the the brewery and even the car park i pointed out where the, the old um, house used to be you know the little steps and stuff i love how it's kind of over the different eras people have done you know added little bits on and stuff and i mean do, do you think there'd be much room to expand any further on the site you're in or there's not a lot of room left now <laughs> we basically we kept going further and further down the hill and we, we've had to preserve the space in the yard to get lorries turned around um, and so there's not really much space left uh, there. We have a, an area within some of the existing buildings that could be redeveloped if we wanted to expand on the production side, on the brew house side. Yeah. Um, uh, but apart from that we're full up here. Right. So ju just because uh, we get a lot of brewers who listen to this podcast, like what, what sort of hectolitre age is your kit and how, how many hex are you doing a year? And well, I'm afraid we're speaking barrels, so you have to, uh, a hectolitre is about 0.6 of a barrel. So yeah. um, we, we, our brew length, our maximum brew length uh, we do at the moment of landlord is 250 barrels in, from one mash. You're right, okay. Those mash tons are pretty epic. It's quite <laughs> a big mash <laughs> <tons>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, in terms of broad uh, annual output, 
um, you know, we're, we're just over the 100,000 hectoliter right. uh, level, and that's including both the draft, which is our, our main product, the cask beer, mm. uh, but we also do some bottled beer, although we don't bottle it ourselves, yeah. we, we do the brewing. Mm. I mean, so talk, talk to us about the brewery itself and the, the processes behind making a beer at Timothy Taylor's. I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners will be a fair with the brewing practices, you know, that all, it's pretty much whether a home brewer or you know, a global brewery is more or less the same things going on. But what, what are some of the things that are unique to Timothy Taylor's that perhaps other brewers don't have access to? Well, it starts at the beginning <coughs> with our, uh, our own spring water. Uh, so all our beers are brewed entirely with the, the beer from the Knoll Spring, mm. uh, which is two big boreholes we have on site. And um, apart from that, uh, we have a very traditional brew house, um, a traditional British infusion brew house, which is a three vessel brew house, yep. the mash tun, the copper, and a hop back. And we have a hop back because we still use whole leaf hops uh, in order to flavor our beers with the very delicate aromatics of traditional English hops. Um, and before we even put the hops in, that multi base we have, it comes from Golden Promise Barley Malt, which again, we're the only brewery who uses that for their full production. Yep. A few small breweries have used it for certain beers, but we're, we're, we're the mainstay of Golden Promise use in the country. Uh, <coughs> and it goes on from there because our yeast um, is unique to us. We first brought this strain in from Oldham Brewery about 40 years ago and that culture we've been reusing ever since, harvesting each week, um, washing every month, acid washing to keep it nice and clean, picking the, choosing the healthiest yeast to use for next week's brewing and it's, it's evolved uh, and mutated and evolved to its environment here and become a very stable culture mm. and uh, that's completely unique to us now, it's not like the original strain it came from. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I think I said to you earlier, Nick, that we, um, you know, when I when I came here, I'm not a brewer by background, so it was amazing. Friends had gotten in touch with me that said, "Oh, landlord, you know, when it comes on our local, we all text each other to drink it." So I certainly came wondering, almost, what, you know, behind your question, well, what is it that tailors do to kind of make this beer that people can really taste the difference? Mm. And uh, I won't go into all the you know the technical points that Andy did, but I th think the general thing I found was that there are all these things that Andy elicits, and it's not that any one of them is a knockout punch, but if you get you know a three or four percent advantage from each one, by the time you get through the list of them, you know whether it's the barley or the whole leaf hops or the use of the hop back, it does actually make a big difference you know to the finished beer. And, and so I think it's that um, you know, collective effort and focus on all the different details um, that, that, that makes for, for the beer being very distinguished. Yeah. I mean, Timothy Taylor's landlord has been a staple flagship beer for your brewery now for like, what is it, about 70 years or? Um, mm, no, it's not quite as long as that, but right. uh, it started as a bottle beer in 1952. Right. So it is 60 plus years, but um, it's uh, really been a, a sort of, known as a cask beer since the 1970s actually. Right. So I mean how did that beer come into be? Was it was it just like a one-off back in um, back in the day and then it's just people enjoyed it and 
you know, ask for it again and again? Or like well, it was an interesting story, but there were actually there had been a beer brewed quite similar to that before 1952, but uh, it was only used for bottling beer. Then they decided to refine the recipe and launch it as a as a bottled beer. Yep. And they actually uh, were quite inventive in those days, 1952, they, they had a tear-off label which you could put your name on and your suggestion for the name of this new beer. And one of, a, a lot of our trade was in working men's clubs then, and a club steward actually put in, the, suggested the name Landlord, and he got £500 as a prize for that, which in 1952 was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and this is a side thing to that. In 2013 or 14, we had a similar competition to rename our best bitter. I remember this competition, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we asked people to send in their suggestions, and the present licensee, licensee at the time at the Boltmaker's Arm, suggested Boltmaker, and that's what it became. And he too received a prize, which was £500 again. So not worth quite as much <laughs> <laughs> in real terms as creativity it was in nineteen well with inflation. But it went on then as a bottled beer for a few mm. years. I'm not entirely sure, but certainly through the sixties as well. And then it became available as a cask as a draft beer. Yep. And through the seventies it started to win awards. So seventy six it sort of swept the board actually at the industry awards, winning both draft, bottled, and they even put a keg in for a bit of a laugh and it won first prize. Right. <laughs> uh, we didn't do any keg beer. But, um, and it, it sort of had a cult status then really, and it came through the 80s and volumes kept going up. It was a minor brand for us till the uh, late 80s, early 90s, late 80s. Yeah. Fair. And uh, since then, it's just been very successful all the way through, continued to win awards mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's been it's been the backbone of the brewery for as you said for quite a few years. Yeah. So I mean how do you, how do you achieve consistency with a beer such as landlord? Um, so that when every time a punter goes and orders a pint over the bar they they know they're gonna get the same optimum condition. Particularly with like cast beer, because you know it's like <laughs> when it leaves the brewery mm -hmm out of your hands in a lot of ways. Of course, yeah. So in the brewery we do as much as we can. We have a very strict quality assurance system, but we've always been very good at making sure we've used top quality raw materials and very often, for example, the hops from the same farmers each year. So mm -hmm. some of the growers of our WGV Whitbread Golding variety hops, we've been using them for many, many years, similar with the Fuggles. And um, so you get the consistency as much as you can in the brewery, but as you say, once it leaves the brewery with cask beer, you are in the hands of uh, the people, if you go to a third party transporting the beer, but also the end user or the end customer for us, the publican, who um, is, uh, has still some work to do on the beer to bring it to its, its finest peak, mm. i.e. the cellar, cellar management uh, and looking after the beer, letting it have the proper time to settle and condition in the cask. Um, so we do a lot of training out in the field. We have uh, a lot of sales guys now across the country and they're not just to our own pubs or direct deliver pubs, but 
pubs, any pubs in the country that have our beer on, we offer to go in and do cellar training and make sure they're looking after the beer properly. Yeah. And they've all had, um, our sales directors sent them all to the cast mark training. So, I mean, we really want to make sure they've got the, uh, you know, the top training they possibly can because of the importance, as you say, of getting it right all the way through the, the chain to the end consumer. Yeah, because you were saying earlier, Tim, weren't you, that you've got um, refrigerated lorries, right? That's to, right, to yeah. Stuff. So, we, you know, we, to try and keep the beer at cellar temperature uh, as much as it's in our control, uh, our long-distance lorries are delivering to customers and wholesalers uh, are temperature controlled. So whether it's hot outside or cold outside, the beer's at, at southern temperature. But again, you know, the point you referenced in your question really is there's only so much we control and then we have to work with our partners to try and make sure that mm. all the hard work that's been done at the brewery isn't let down yeah. in the final yeah. Yeah. You know, few miles to the pub and in the pub. Yeah. I mean, what can smaller brewers do who maybe don't have access to stuff like refrigerated lorries and stuff um, to ensure that their beers are going out in the same kind of optimum condition so that when, um, you know, a punter goes down to the pub and wants a pint of their beer, then they know that it's going to be as good as it can be? Mm. Well, <clears throat> local small breweries have an an advantage in that most of their customers are going to be fairly local and by the time they've delivered, the, you know, they're, if they're not going out overnight, if they're delivering the same day, the beer isn't going to warm up very much in a nine-gallon cask. Mm. But um, if they're delivering further afield, it does become tricky. Um, and it's, it's, it's the, in some ways, there is a bit of a compromise you have to make if you want your beer to go further afield. Um, even us, we haven't got the resources to deliver directly to pubs outside of really Yorkshire and a bit of Derbyshire and Lancashire. Um, so you have to hand it to a third party. Yeah. And that's even more so for a smaller brewery. And I suppose the best thing is that you choose your partners well, that you make sure that they do look after the beer properly and try as much as possible to get round to the outlets that are selling the beer and make sh taste it and make sure it's good because yeah. then you know everything's okay. I mean, how do you how do you choose a distributor? Because I, I, I know for a, a lot of smaller independent brewers, you know, just getting a listing is like, oh. yes, you know, I've, we've done it. <laughs> whereas, you know, whereas obviously for something like Timothy Taylor, um, you know, you, you guys, you've got a, a really good range of beers, you're a well-known brand and stuff. The, the beer's just kind of almost sell themselves um, if you're in a position anyone listen to this if they're in a position where they are trying to choose a distributor like should, should they like literally single out I, I would like to work with that distributor to send my beers further afield because I know they're gonna um, handle those beers well or rather than just being like please take my beer you know begging on bended knee <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think selectivity is really is really important. I mean, I, I take your point. Sometimes you can't be selective. You're you're keen to get somebody who wants to take on your beer. But I suppose um, the the key thing is having somebody distributing you that actually wants the beer, um, that will give the beer some focus. Because we know how many beers and brewers there are out there mm. nowadays. And if you're just one beer amongst a thousand that's going into a particular distributor. Um, yes, you might have gotten the listing, but 
what's the opportunity really to, to kind of get the, the pull through. So I think it's, um, it's, it's trying to identify uh, distributors that maybe because you're near them or because they have a particular affinity with what you're doing, you know, have some connection with you and where you feel you get a little bit more attention. Yep. I think the other thing you gotta look at is the other side, you know, who, who is your target market? Who are you trying to supply to? And what sort of outlets um, is this distributor going to? You know, Andy was, was remarking, it's quite kind of amusing in a way, if you go back to the early days of Landlord, it was about kind of working men's uh, clubs. And now the way it's evolved, because you know we are a, a relatively highly priced beer. Mm. Um, clearly, anyone can stalk us if they want to. But you know, we, we we look for distributors who are focused on outlets that can afford that price, yep. who can pass that price on to the consumer they're getting. Who, I mean, for us, one of the things we put in our our kind of company vision is we want to work with distributors who put a value on what we do. Because as you've seen today, we put a lot of effort into the beer, and what we're not into doing is just, you know, flogging it for a low price. We want a fair price for the efforts that we've put in, and so again, one of the things is, well, who are the partners that we can work with that do put a value on the efforts that um, that we've put in, and mm -hmm. that you know will, will then represent us well with these other outlets. Yeah. Well, I think mm -hmm. that comes back to the conversation we had before um, we were recording this, and we looked around the brewery earlier how. Um, like cast beer from the independents should be like the, the the premium product, which is something what I admire about Timothy Taylor's. It's actually, it's a premium product, isn't it? Whereas it's cask has become, uh, you know, historically it's been devalued as a commodity item, and therefore um, it's, I find it really sad. Having been on the receiving end of this as a brewer, it's really sad that they're having to make these choices where oh you know I need to sell my beer for 65 pound a perkin you know oh. and, and oh they've not done their costings or, or whatever it is you know and it's rather than thinking well actually it cost me X amount of money to this I want to make X amount of money from this and therefore I'm charging this oh. then on the other end you've got you've got uh, publicans who are um, up against it with business rates and all the rest of it they've got to make their margin I mean like it, it, how do you see that cycle ending? Do you, do you see it ending? Do you think there's a way out of that for the, the brewery sector? Um, I, I think it's difficult. I think, uh, you know, as I said, my background's mostly in spirits, and I was pretty uh, shocked, uh, is not too strong a word, by this kind of commoditization that you, you mentioned. I mean, um, I found a, a letter in a, in a files going back from 2005 to, from a major customer saying, this is now our price of beer, four to four point three percent. This is the price, four three to four five. This is the price, which I just think is extraordinary. You couldn't imagine somebody coming out with a similar price list for gins or cars. You know, if it's a two-liter car, this is the price. So, we kind of have to work from where where we are, and I do think we're in a very difficult position. Um, but I think m more breweries have to try and really put a value on what they're doing. And, and kind of be ruthless about getting that value in the marketplace because the alternative is to sell the price, to undersell what you're doing, and that might give you some business in the short term, but mm. you, you just don't have a viable you know, economic model. Um, I think the amazing thing, you know, you're talking about the publicans, and you know, we have a small pub estate, 19 outlets, and we understand the pressures with rates and all, but the interesting thing is 
the consumer is willing to pay a premium for Cascale. And so that means the publican that sells Cascale at a higher price can, you know, and buys Cascale at a higher price can achieve a margin. And I, I feel a lot of the issue is more with these intermediaries, you know, that, that somehow have got this commodity mindset and, and feel that they've just got to drill the, the price down. And if you look at the care and attention and the nature of Cascale, a very natural product, etc., it should really be at the top of the pricing ladder and somehow it's positioned at the end. Mm. But uh, I wouldn't want you to think I'm some sort of theorist because we are where we are and so it's not, I don't think there's a, some solution that will change this overnight, but I do think the industry has to work and start working now at valuing cask and putting a value on what they do. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, you know, particularly in the current climate, Cascale's actually in decline for the last few years. So you've got more breweries chasing a declining market and that is a recipe for a lot of uh, price uh, price orientation. Yeah. Just going back to um, Landlord, I mean, it's, it's had a bit of a resurgence of late, especially amongst uh, craft brewers who may have once dismissed Best Bitters and English Pale Ales as hot with things like Fuggles and Goldings as, as Twiggy or Moss-like. It's, it's now being heralded almost as a religious experience to behold. I mean, wh why do you think young drinkers in particular um, it's it's become a bit of a go-to beer, and it even occupies permanent lines in bars like Northern Monk's Refectory in Manchester or the Five Points uh, Pembury Tavern in Hackney. Well, I think um, <coughs> I mean we're very fortunate, and we get a lot of um, lovely compliments from people who have started up breweries in, the, in say the last twenty years. Mm. A lot of them do say that their inspiration was landlord, and. When I started, it was uh, in that at that strength of beer. It was the, uh, the the palest, hoppiest beer on the market. When Michael Jackson, the beer writer, came round here, um, he wrote a lovely article afterwards, and he said people often ask me to describe landlord. I would I would describe it as liquid hops. Now these days, the way that the other beers in the market have gone, you wouldn't say that these days, but it still tastes the same. But people's Palettes have yeah. gone up the scale as the beers have gone up the scale, um, but I think it was an inspiration to a lot of people. So I think, and we we like to think that we we still brew the best traditional pale ale in the country, landlord, and um, I think that's where the respect has come from. Why it is still popular because we haven't compromised on anything. It, it is the same beer as it was brewed thirty or forty years mm. ago when it became a, a cult cask beer. Yeah. What are some of the challenges you have um, with having such a well-regarded beer under your belt, such as Landlord, especially when it comes to making room for other, other beers in your range? Mm. Well, it has been a challenge, isn't it, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> because um, it is difficult to persuade people to try other beers and be willing to pay the premium price we expect to get for Landlord. Um, but we have had a lot of success. Bolt Maker mm. won Champion Beer of Britain in 2014. Um, and had a fantastic year afterwards, and we thought, well, that will, volumes will decline down. But actually, volumes are now higher on Boltmaker than they were after one beer of the year, because it's now got a following and it's becoming a better-known brand. And that is much more of a traditional Yorkshire bitter, 
malty sweet but with a real chunk of uh, hop and bitterness in it and it's it that appeals to a lot of people as well yeah so when it comes to marketing a flagship beer like landlord to an ever-changing audience like where, whereas on the one hand you've got consumers that have been drinking it for decades they, they, you know they still venture down to the pub every afternoon for several pints of their favorite tipple then on the other end you've got this younger craft beer drinker for want of a better word um, you know who are bombarded with color and digital noise and marketing messages and, and newer crazier beers all the time like it's, it seems that landlord spans quite a wide audience base and I'm, in, I'm interested to know how the marketing department holds that tension yeah because it can't be easy no well I think the first thing to say is we've only had a marketing department since 2015 right. um, you know my predecessor Charles Dent I think he was largely right his view was that the beer sold itself uh, but it was interesting because I did some research after I joined and what that showed was that even amongst ale drinkers there were large segments who hadn't heard of Landlord um, and some of these were the younger, younger legal drinking age consumers. And I think the way we've tried to approach it is the first thing was my sort of brief overall was, uh, you know, I see Landlord as a timeless classic. There are these brands out there that transcend time and young and old, you know, um, Levi's or, you know, other sorts of brands like that. And so my whole thing was we need to think of it as a timeless classic. And I suppose the other little bit on the marketing was this idea of tell, not sell. Yep. So, you know, it's really about giving people reasons why they should consider landlord and why it's special um, rather than shouting, you know, special price or that sort of thing. So I don't know if you've seen this cartoon campaign that we uh, that we do. But um, we started with this cartoon campaign that in a humorous way brought out things that really help make us unique and mm. differentiate us. In fact, uh, Mr. Leman on my right here featured in one of them with, <laughs> yeah. with a cartoon of him. I'm not seeing and with a, with a, We'll show you afterwards, but with a subtitle that said, um, is this the longest apprenticeship in history? Um, which we did right after he came became head brewer mm. because he became head brewer after he'd still been with us, I think, 29 28 years. 28 years. years. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing that we have done is, you know, we've taken on another marketeer, who uh, Scott, who I think you met, yep. younger guy, um, and he is much more tuned to the social channels. So I think, you know, I talked to you about my marketing background, but as you can see, I'm an older chap. And uh, so, you know, bringing Scott in, who's very familiar with the social channels and what his contemporaries do and making sure that we use this campaign and the social media to get our message out. And I can honestly say that in the last three years, we've seen a real about turn in the attitude of that younger drinking age yeah. uh, consumer as a result of that. But it's, it's not been trying to be some, it's not through trying to be something we're not, yep. you know, it's actually trying to honestly present what we are and, and why we think we got a quality offer for them. Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing how much of a difference social media, when done well, um, can really make your business. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's not done well all that often, but when, when you really hit the mark and, and you know what you're trying to achieve through it, it can, it can really, really, you know, bring in sales. Um, just for any brewers listening to this who maybe want to create a flagship beer 
um, that will maybe hopefully put them on the map. Um, I mean, what, what advice would you give them from a, a brewer's perspective? What, what sort of considerations should they be making when they're looking to develop a beer like, like Landlord? Well, of course, the quick answer is that you don't really know you've got a flagship beer till several years down the line because it takes a long time to build any brand. Mm. There are there have been a few exceptions in, in the modern world with the newer breweries. Jaipur IPA, for example, I would say within two years of them brewing it became you know, very widely available yep. and widely known. But um, it's, uh, you've got to brew a beer that's going to stand out from the crowd, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and surely that, that's getting increasingly harder now. That's increasingly harder, but that doesn't have to mean it's extremely hoppy or extremely sour or whatever. It, at the end of the day, there is something which is a balance and a moorishness in beer yep. that's very difficult to achieve. And I think, I think really, to get a beer that's so successful, you call it a flagship ale, you've got to get that balance right. That's the really crucial thing. Mm. So we've, we've touched a little bit upon uh, pubs and selling beers um, so far, but um, as, a, as a cask producing brewery, how, how do you see the future of the British pub panning out over the next few years? Well, personally, I'm quite uh, encouraged because I think uh, figures can, statistics can say many things to people, but pub closures have slowed down. There's many more outlets that have opened up that may not be traditional pubs, but beer itself is, is of big interest to people these mm. days. And I, I think pubs, I, I feel pubs are actually doing a bit better this Christmas I feel more people have gone back into the pubs than we have seen in some of the previous years. Uh, I think people appreciate it is a traditional uh, British icon, a pub, and yeah. this is really our history has been about going to the pubs, much more for food now than mm. drink uh, than it used to be. Um, so I feel pubs have got a, a brilliant free future. Yeah. I mean, what, what can landlords do to make sure that if, if a beer is moving a little bit slower, um, it, it's kept in the best condition? It is difficult with cask beer because realistically you've got to empty the cask within three days um, to prevent the, the air yeah. which you've drawn into the cask turning the beer off. Um, however, yeah, there are some tricks. I mean, if it's a reasonable strength beer like Landlord, um, hard pegging after each session so that uh, no more air can get in overnight and the little bit of CO2 that's still being produced by the yeast can actually start to fill the space with carbon dioxide mm. a bit more and give a bit more condition in the beer and of course basic hygiene because if your cellar is clean yep. and the air going into the cask is, is cleaner than it would be in a mucky cellar, yeah. your beer is going <laughs> to last a bit longer. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think the future of cask beer looks like? Because um, like I say, you know, we, we've got pubs that are um, closing, um, you know, and it's, it's um, unfortunately, cask hasn't had a great reputation, um, and which is really sad, you know, but it's just for lots of different factors. I mean, how, how do you see cask panning out as a product and a, a, a beer style over the, the coming decade? I don't think there's a problem because <coughs> most of the new breweries who brew beer, brew cask beer, um, I know some 
famously went out of cast uh, beer or started off never intending to do cast beer. Some of them have come back into cask beer. It is, it is still our unique national drink. No other country in the world makes this mm. uh, in a big way. And um, it's unique to the entrees. You can't buy it at home. You can't drink it at home, not unless you take a container to the pub and fill it up. Um, I, I feel cask has got a good future. It's been written off so many times before, and it's come back bouncing bigger than ever. So uh, I'm very confident about cask beer. Well, Tim I think I, I, I come at it from, a, I mean, because I think that um, optimism for our head brewer is, is, is absolutely <laughs> right, but maybe going back and, and building the two things we talked earlier about pubs and the pressures they're under. And, mm. you know, I think the, the pub is a great British institution, um, but there are things that the government can do to help, you know, the percentage of rates that the pub industry pays because yep. of the way rates are calculated is really out of proportion and, and, and needs to be adjusted and you know again we have very high duty rates compared to other European countries so I think there's you know issues there I think on the on the um, you know you were talking before about um, outlets that are worried about maybe the cast spoiling or whatever and I think some of the, the future of cast because I think cast will always be there but I think the question is how large a sector will it be because as I've said earlier it is been in decline the last few years. And I think that's about publicans having a quality offer. And what I would say is, um, rather than first focusing on the tricks of maybe extending the life of cask, is to start out with as narrow a range as yeah. possible and that you know you can get through mm. and build your cask business um, and build the quality reputation you have. And then what you find is that your cask sales start to increase and then perhaps you can add on a third pump or whatever. And I think too many outlets now um, think, oh, well, we've got to have an offer five, you know, five casks, even if they're not doing that sort of business. And I can tell you that even in our own pubs, um, you know, we have won the Lord Rodney here in Keithley. It doesn't do an enormous amount of cask business. So we say to him, look, a maximum of three beers on cask so that you can make sure that the person has a quality experience. Because as somebody relatively new to cask, I, I'm really, you know, uh, the number of times I've been disappointed getting a pint of cask and it's really poor quality. And the thing is, I'm in the industry, but if you're not in the industry, why if you're in that outlet the next week would you choose to spur, uh, spend your hard-earned money on cask? You know, you just say it's not worth the risk. So it's got to start from the grassroots up with outlets offering fewer beers in perfect condition and, and then I think we can build it out and up. And then I think the other area is the price area we've talked about because the, the quality focus on cask, whether it's a pub level or a brewer level, won't be there if there's a race to the bottom on pricing. So somewhere along the game, you know, the price, uh, we have to start demanding a higher price for this quality yeah. product uh, and put margin into it for both the brewer and the publican um, so they can do justice to it. Yeah. Timothy Taylor's got a lot of history behind it, and I guess it's easy to think, easy quote-unquote, oh, you know, they, they sell a lot of beer, they don't have any problems, but for, for a business of your size, what are some of the challenges 
and difficulties that are unique to you at this kind of level? Because I've heard it said that the, the bigger you are as a company, your problems just have more zeros behind them. <laughs> like what, so what, what are some of the challenges, both from a, a, a brewing perspective and a business perspective, do you find at this kind of level? Yeah, well, maybe if I start out with the business mm, uh, and then yeah, talk sure, about yeah, the yeah, uh, about yeah. the brewing, um, you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I do think the price dynamic is one of the biggest issues. Uh, you know, Andy mentioned that wh while we are commanding this premium for landlord, you know, price increases uh, become harder and harder, and yet our costs, whether it's for barley or hops or labor or whatever, are going up each year. Um, and I know this will probably be a little bit, um, you know, different people have different perspectives on the whole small brewer's relief aspect. But what that has done is really, it was brought in to make up for a lack of economies of scale for smaller brewers. But most of them have felt to compete, they've got to put, build that into their pricing. So it's really driven down the average price of ale in the market, which is a, which is a fact, at a time when you know, I think price is one of the biggest issues that the industry has. Mm. You know, as I take, took you around today, I pointed out all the different investments that we've done over the years. Well, we can't make those investments if we don't make a margin. Um, our shareholders, they're in it because they passionately believe in what we do, but they like their dividend. Well, their dividend is not much different than they get in a building society. Um, so, you know, one of the issues from my point of view is to make sure we do even if we have to sacrifice some volume and lose some customers, that we continue to keep a value on what we do um, so that we can make a profit. It's not an evil word. So we can continue to invest in our story and make sure that we're here in 50 years time as well as, as, well as now. So that would be sort of, you know, there are lots of other issues as chief executive I get involved in, but if I could pick out one, that, that's yeah. definitely number one. Mm. And what about from a brewery perspective, Andy? I suppose from a brewery perspective, the, the challenges are probably not much different from the challenges that were 50 years ago or whatever, but mm. um, the raw materials, seasonality, most brewers will know there was a disastrous harvest of barley the year before last, yep. and um, this led to a lot of problems, uh, and there was a challenge making sure that the beers fermented right and everything was okay in the brew house. But the biggest challenge we've had probably is is sorting our different varieties of hops. Uh, Fuggles, in particular, uh, susceptible to the uh, verticillium wilt, which um, destroys hop yards and has meant that most a lot of farmers have stopped growing fuggles. And this was becoming a real issue. You know, people planted fuggles in France, but they didn't taste the same. Uh, we've got round that one by persuading some farmers to actually plant some new fuggles for us um, and that's that's kept us okay for the time being and until more and more people come out of fuggles and the other one is uh, our Savinsky Goldings which we use in our beers they've now got this disease pressure where people have used waste from the uh, citrus fruit industry mm. as a mulch on the yards and they've now got this citric hop bark virus, this bark virus, which is destroying hop fields and they're, they're digging them all up now. Yeah. 
So these are challenges. Um, unfortunately, these flavours are quite unique and it's difficult to find replacement varieties. So. Yeah. I mean, how do you think climate change is going to affect um, both, well, all, all the key elements that go into making beer, like hops mm. and malt and stuff? Well, we haven't seen the last few years. I mean, the, the, malt har the barley harvest was looking fantastic last year and then, of course, it rained, a spring barley harvest, it rained at completely the wrong time and rather spoilt it. But um, if the temperature rises, the hops should be, English hops should actually be better right. because um, we are really on the periphery of hop growing. You know, the hop, part of the reason you get these fantastic aromatic hops from uh, America is mostly variety, but it's also the climate, sunshine, and the fact that they, they're much better at doing irrigation, mm. managing the, the yards better you get better quality hops. Yeah. How do you think brewers in the current climate can take a leaf out of Timothy Taylor's books in this day and age to create a, a brewery, a, a beer and a brand that will leave a legacy for future generations of beer drinkers? Well, I think the main thing is you have confidence in what you do and know what you do best, what style of beers you produce, whether you are completely uh, free trade and you, or whether you want to own pubs. but You've just got to make sure everything you do is is best, and um, making sure there's there's something great to pass on to the next generation. Mm. I think it's also about you know not being too short term. That these yeah. things take time, and, and I know it's difficult because people are under the commercial pressures we've been talking about. But you know, you know, like Andy was saying, if you want a flagship brand, it's not like you create it and it's there in six months time to a certain extent you don't know until you put the right focus and attention behind it and work hard to introduce consumers to it and and everything else so you've just instead of looking to the you know, too many people look this is what we want and what you really need to focus on is what are the drivers that are going to get you to where you want yep. whether it's the quality of production or the distribution or or whatever and focus on on those and, and and the other will come will come with it yeah it's interesting because I, I often draw a lot of parallels between um, the music industry and the brewing industry but I'm, I'm also a musician for, for my sins and um, I've, I've been listening to uh, pet sounds by the Beach Boys again recently just mm. had a bit of a resurgence for that album and I was reading about it um, online the other day that actually when that album came out it wasn't revered like it is now was one of the greatest pop records of all time it was a little bit kind of off-center and and although some people heralded it as like oh this is a really good album mm. others were a little bit like this is just a bit strange whereas like retrospectively it's, yeah. it's pet sounds isn't it it's like their masterpiece well interesting enough one a group of people who did realize what it was for its strengths were the beatles yes because there was this big competition going on and they saw the Beach Boys brought out this and I thought, bloody hell, what are we going to do next Yeah, to, to beat that? Yeah, I think you can admire, you know, we certainly admire uh, what other brewers do and um, I think I was mentioning before that um, there's quite a collegiate um, nature to the brewing industry. Mm. So, uh, you know, there are brewers that we've hosted here and, yeah. and, and kind of vice, vice versa, but... Um, yeah, I, I, look, I come at it the other way, so I, I always say to the marketing team that um, we'll know we're doing a good job when, other, when our competitors look at what we're doing and say, now why didn't we think of that? Yeah. 
And it's interesting, there are a few things we've done lately, like the Champion Club for our uh, loyal stalkers who meet certain quality parameters and everything else, and we've created this club to recognize them. And all of a sudden, let's just say a few other companies, <laughs> maybe not calling it Champion Club, but have come up with something similar. And there's a few other things like that. So, you know, I, I think the challenge I give the team here is, um, you know, let's face it, it may be collegiate, but it's also very competitive. And, you know, we've got to work to kind of stay ahead of things. But that's as much, you know, there's the brewing side of it, and what I mean by brewing different beers and all to complement landlord. But there's also, we do have this great star brand and landlord and being creative in how we introduce consumers to it. Yeah. One of the things we're doing a lot of now that we did none of uh, back in 2014 are events where we'll have a bar, so we, you know, the... Um, what's the one, the Keswick Mountain Festival, you know, we, we have the bar there mm. and it's a way of introducing the beer to consumers but in an environment where they can relax and enjoy it. I sometimes with some things like beer festivals, the challenge I have with those sometimes is there's loads of beers there so how much can you distinguish yourself, how relaxed is the environment, they're often in slightly, you know, odd locations in terms of just sitting back and relaxing and enjoying mm. a beer. So we've tended to, to kind of pick up on some of these festivals um, where we can have our bar and kind of present the beers we want. So it's just, yeah, I mean, there's the old motto, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. So we certainly never are not a brewery that rests on its laurels. You know, mm. we're, we're always mm. looking at how we can do things better, whether it's on the brewing side or the marketing side yeah. or the sales side. So, just looking into the future, then, like, how, how does a brewery like Timothy Taylor's invest in the next generation of brewers and the brewing industry? Well, as far as internally, we've uh, we always take on uh, Harriet Watt trained brewers, but we have um, I'm the oldest, but then there there are generations below me of, of brewers with five brewers altogether, in ages running down to Gordon, who's 26 or 27 I yeah. think so um, we always have brought people in to train them up um, we've been lucky nearly all of them have stayed most of their careers here so far yeah amazing but well th thanks for being on the podcast today um, I've just got one final question both from a I guess from a, a brewery side and a more business commercial side what one thing can a brewery brand or business do to hop forward with their beer business today well, from the commercial point of view, my bit of advice, and, and this won't surprise you, is to put a value on what you do and make sure you're getting a fair price, that you're getting a return. Because if, if your brewery doesn't make sense from a commercial perspective, there's no way you're going to stand the test of time. So yeah. you've got to put a value on what you do. Right. And as a brewer, you might not be surprised, but the, the most important thing is that you use high quality materials and you don't compromise on that even if you've got financial pressures your raw material costs as a as a proportion of your production costs are, are not massive uh, use the best hops you can get and brew the beer um, in a uh, with a slow fermentation that gives you much better flavors don't don't let the temperature go too high all the, all the classic brewing things that people do cut corners on to try to try and be more efficient 
but people do notice the difference down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Brill, th thanks for being on the show today. H how can people find out more about Timothy Taylors? And uh, can, can brewers come visit you? Can general listeners come and have a brewery tour? Or what's, what's the crack? Uh, we don't do um, tours for, for general listeners, I'm afraid. Um, we have insurance implications, but our, our old buildings are not designed. But um, we have been open to, to other brewers, who are con people who are in contact with the industry. Mm. Um, we're happy to speak to people and help them uh, and p possibly come around the brewery if, they, if that's going to be of use. Amazing, Brill. And you've got a website which is? Yeah, so our website is timothytaylor.co.uk and there's lots of information about the brewery and our, our beers there. Fantastic, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Today's episode of the Hot Forward podcast has been brought to you by Simpsons Malt, the UK's independent home of good malt. Founded in 1862, Simpsons Malt is a fifth-generation family-owned business which is a passion for making malts with taste, flavour and consistently high quality with the world's best brewers and distillers in mind, helping them to craft the finest beers and whiskies. From grain to glass, the company's malts are certified and fully traceable, produced only from certified seed of the finest UK two-row barley that have been procured by the company's agricultural trading division, McCree Simpson and Prentice, which has farming partners across England and Scotland. After more than 155 years in business, Simpson's Malt continues to invest in state-of-the-art equipment and its two maltings in Berwick-upon-Tweed, Northumberland and Tivitshaw St Margaret, Norfolk. This constant innovation and drive to improve processes ensures the consistent production of malts with character. For more information on Simpsons Malt, visit simpsonsmalt.co.uk. To inquire about the company's malts, call 01289 or email orderoffice at simpsonsmalt.co.uk. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Four podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Right, so